Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking, Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood Babylon. In Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger wrote extensively about one of his forebears in controversial, gossip-peddling, Confidential Magazine. I've talked about Confidential often on this podcast, and for the past year or so, I've been attempting to put together a complete collection of the magazine, one eBay purchase at a time. As we wind down our series of episodes inspired by anger, we're going to do two episodes about the trial that effectively ended Confidential Magazine as a threat to Hollywood business as usual. Here is an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. In 1952, 
a little magazine appeared on newsstands all over the country. This new offspring of yellow journalism soon became the talk of the town, and Confidential acquired a reputation as the worst kind of rag. But everyone read it anyway. Its motto was, tells the facts and names the names. Confidential carried things further than any of the previous rumor mongers had done, went into greater detail, and did not hesitate to affirm that the stories it published were a faithful account of the facts. The first issue did phenomenally well and sold 250,000 copies. At its peak, Confidential was selling 4 million copies on newsstands, a record for American journalism. With the success of the magazine, its victims were increasingly those Hollywood luminaries whose private lives were of most morbid interest to the public. The success of Confidential enabled publisher Robert Harrison to pay up to $1,000 per gossip item, assuring him a fine stable of spies. In fact, the nucleus of the organization was the bevy of pinup girls who adorned the bars of Sunset Strip. In bed, these high-priced floozies received the confidences of famous stars, while a miniature tape recorder inside their purse, left carelessly open on the bedside table, recorded by night the indiscretions devoured later by avid readers. This reign of terror lasted for four years. While the success and obscenities of Confidential increased with every issue, there was practically no film star who escaped its revelations. Some were victims of a whole series of stories. Marilyn, Orson, Lana, Ava, Frank, and Jane. Ensconced in New York, Publisher Harrison made sure that each article was based on a piece of film or a tape recording. Evidence which was checked by his shyster lawyers before publication. But with increasing success and no prosecutions, he began to embroider truth with picturesque details and overreached himself. He became one of the most hated men in the country. It was not until February of 1957 that a star finally had the courage to decide that enough was enough. Dorothy Dandridge filed suit against the magazine after an article appeared dealing with her alleged exploits in a forest in Naturalist Company. Dandridge asked for $2 million in damages. With the firing of the first shot, the war was on. Dozens of stars who had been slandered filed suits. Today, we are going to begin by talking about Dorothy Dandridge, the first black actress to be nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. We'll talk about who she was and what her career was like before she sued Confidential. Then we'll talk a bit about what Confidential was and what had changed to allow a lawsuit like Dorothy's to happen 
and how that lawsuit resolved. We'll conclude today's episode by exploring what happened to Dorothy Dandridge after the confidential matter was settled. Then, next week, we'll discuss the confidential trial in the context of the other star who appeared in court to dispute their reporting, Maureen O'Hara. Join us, won't you, as we explore Dorothy Dandridge and the trial of Confidential Magazine. In the period immediately before the article about her appeared in Confidential, Dorothy Dandridge was at the top of her game in Hollywood. In the spring of 1955, she had become the first black woman to attend the Academy Awards as a Best Actress nominee for her work in Carmen Jones, an update of the Bizet opera transposed to the World War II era American South. The film was directed by Otto Preminger, who in the years since his Hollywood debut, Laura, had made a name for himself doing three things. He challenged the censors and public opinion by making stylish, serious films that forced viewers to contemplate taboo subjects, such as drug addiction and extramarital sex. He consistently centered stories around female protagonists, employing stars both up-and-coming like Jean Tierney and Linda Darnell, and fading like Joan Crawford. And he made many of those actresses very unhappy with his tyrannical directorial style. Dorothy would come to despise Preminger for the way he treated her on the set of their second collaboration, Porgy and Bess. But during Carmen Jones, the star and her director began an affair that continued after the film had wrapped. So post-Carmen Jones, Dorothy Dandridge was not only revered for having reached a pinnacle of success that had eluded every previous movie actress of her race, but she was also accepted socially as the consort of a very important director. It would be the peak of her career in Hollywood. But that didn't mean that the struggle was over for her. The daughter of Ruby Dandridge, an actress who mostly kept busy playing stereotypical mammy roles, Dorothy had started working as a singer and dancer as a teenager in a group called the Dandridge Sisters. Dorothy met her future husband, Harold Nicholas of the dancing duo The Nicholas Brothers, when she was 15. Dorothy made some of her first film appearances thanks to Harold, who found parts for her as a dancer in segments he filmed with his brother. That was a common way for black entertainers to find work in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, in show-stopping musical numbers or nightclub scenes within movies otherwise cast with white actors. These musical scenes could be easily chopped out of the movie when the print traveled to the more racist parts of the country. It was impossible to cut out whole characters from movies, and this is one reason why the larger speaking parts that went to African-American actors were usually as maids, servants, 
and other stereotypical roles that viewers in the South could accept. When Dorothy was 20, after she and Harold married, she gave birth to a daughter, Lynn. Lynn would never learn to speak, and after years of doctor's visits and tests, Dorothy finally accepted the verdict that Lynn was severely developmentally disabled. The child could not communicate, was sometimes violent, and needed 24-hour-a-day care in order to keep her from hurting herself or others. In a decision that would leave her guilt-stricken for the rest of her life, Dorothy decided that she couldn't be the one to care for her daughter. And Lynn was sent to live with Ruby, and then with a professional caretaker, and finally, to a state institution. With her home life a source of pain, thanks to Lynn's troubles and the marital indifference of her husband, Harold, who she'd divorce in 1951, Dorothy decided to reinvest in her career. She enrolled in the Actors Lab, a Los Angeles-based analog to the Actors Studio, which made a point of being anti-segregationist and inclusive. There, Dorothy met actors from several different races and backgrounds, including Juanita Moore, Bob Davis, Anthony Quinn, Aileen McMahon, and Marilyn Monroe. While she was trying to become a better actress, Dorothy was making most of her money as a nightclub singer, in collaboration with her arranger and boyfriend, Phil Moore, who also worked with Ava Gardner to help develop her voice for the film Showboat, in which she was cast as a half-black character. Ava Gardner was not half-black. She was fully white, and today there would be cultural outrage if she got that part over Lena Horne, who was considered for it, or Dorothy, who was not famous enough yet to be in the running. But back then, it would have been unthinkable to cast an actual black American actress in a role that involved romance with a white actor, because the production code censored depictions of interracial romance. Dorothy would help to change that. In 1952, Dorothy signed to MCA, the top talent agency in town. Within two months, she was offered the lead role in Bright Road, MGM's first film with an all-black cast since the Lena Horne vehicle Stormy Weather, made nearly 10 years earlier. The studio was now being managed by Dory Sherry, a self-professed liberal who believed that it was worth trying to enact social change by making movies that dealt with real life and real problems, as long as those movies were made on a low enough budget that it wouldn't matter if they weren't blockbusters. In Bright Road, Lena would play a teacher at an elementary school in rural Alabama, with Harry Belafonte making his screen debut as the principal of the school. The movie was presented as both a docudrama and a coming-out vehicle for Dorothy. 
this was the highly unusual way the film began. What you're about to hear is Dandridge's voiceover for the first minute of the film between the MGM lion and the title card reading, Bright Road. I'm Dorothy Dandridge. I play the role of Jane Richards, a teacher. And I wasn't sure how it was all going to work out. This was my first day. This is Philip Hepburn, who plays C.T., the boy who never did see much sense in going to school. And this is Harry Belafonte, who plays the part of Mr. Williams, the school principal, who found C.T. the most difficult boy he'd ever known. But it wasn't punishment that C.T. needed. It was love, a love like Tanya's. And Tanya is played by Barbara Sanders. Of course, C.T. never let on that Tanya occupied a special place in his heart. But you couldn't fool the children. It was just a game, a bit of make-believe. Bright Road was a quote-unquote black film directed by a white beneficiary of nepotism, Gerald Mayer, the nephew of Louis B. Mayer. Gerald Mayer was a woke bae who fell in love with Dorothy while directing her in the movie. Their relationship would be the first of many Dorothy would have with white men, including actors Peter Lawford and Kurt Jurgens and director Preminger which would lead to some gossip that she was herself a kind of racist, uninterested in black men. Dorothy would say that she never met black men who were close to her level professionally and in terms of income, with the exception of about three actors, including Belafonte. But Belafonte and other successful black men in the entertainment industry tended to arrive in Hollywood with black wives and then divorce those wives and marry white women. If Dorothy had made a concerted effort to find, say, black doctors to date, that probably would have created gossip that could have been used against her too. But the false perception that she was sexually averse to her own race was problematic because it left her open to attack from all sides. This stereotype about Dandridge, which painted her as a light-skinned social climber whose body was only available to white men and was wantonly available to them, would bubble up as subtext in the Confidential article. And it was gossip that Otto Preminger would cruelly stoke later which was ironic and particularly gross, given that he was one of the more grotesque men who Dorothy became involved with. When 20th Century Fox signed Otto Preminger to direct a screen adaptation of Carmen Jones, a Rodgers and Hammerstein stage musical adaptation of the Bizet opera with an all-black cast, Preminger knew who Dorothy Dandridge was and had no intention of casting her in the title role. His impression of Dorothy was that she was a Grace Kelly type, incredibly sophisticated and refined, and thus all wrong for the part of Carmen, a factory worker whose insistence on being free to seduce whomever she likes has tragic consequences. 
At their first meeting, Preminger offered Dorothy the chance to audition for another, smaller role in the film. She decided she would force the bald Austrian to see her as Carmen. She arrived to their second meeting, dressed in a tight skirt, slit halfway up her thigh. Preminger immediately arranged a screen test. He also fell in love with her, and Dorothy soon reciprocated his feelings. Otto Preminger has a reputation as an absolute tyrant, and there were certainly times on the set of Carmen Jones when he pushed Dorothy too hard, sometimes intentionally to fire her up for a scene, although sometimes it resulted in her running off set to cry in her dressing room. But Dorothy responded to Preminger's faith in her, his confidence that she could become a major star, not despite her race, but because of it. And she happily allowed him to control her career, even letting him dictate how she dressed, which included buying her a new wardrobe every season from Givenchy. On Carmen Jones, Dorothy's trust in Preminger proved justified, and vice versa. It's hard to overstate what a big deal this movie was in 1954. It was the first Hollywood film with an all-black cast to be shot in Technicolor, and the first to be promoted as a mainstream film that all audiences should want to see. It got rave reviews in both black and white publications, although James Baldwin was highly critical, writing that the film was totally divorced from the realities of black American life. Most musicals were not expected to parallel real life, but there was a lot of weight on Carmen Jones's shoulders because it was so rare that a Hollywood film treated black characters as serious people. Dorothy didn't win the Best Actress Oscar. This was the year that Grace Kelly won for The Country Girl, beating not just Dorothy, but also Judy Garland in A Star is Born and Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. But just the nomination was enough to catapult her into a realm of movie stardom that no black woman had reached before. And it led to another milestone. She was signed to a three-picture contract by 20th Century Fox, guaranteeing a paycheck of no less than $75,000 per picture, more than three times what she had been paid to make Carmen Jones. This made her the first black actress to be signed to a major studio star contract since Lena Horne 13 years earlier. Horn had mostly been cast in all-black musicals and in musical numbers in otherwise all-white films. Dorothy's contract stipulated that Fox was only to cast her in leads and co-leads. This was progress, at least theoretically. Daryl Zanuck, head of the studio, told Dorothy he believed she could play a wide variety of ethnicities. Mexicans, American Indians, quote-unquote half-breeds, all of which had frequently been played in Hollywood movies by white women. In 
The first film Fox tried to cast Dorothy in was The King and I. Zanuck thought she'd be perfect for the secondary role of Tub Tim. Dorothy had misgivings about playing a slave, even in a story divorced from American slavery, and Otto Preminger, who was still her boyfriend, although wouldn't be for much longer, forcefully objected to her playing a secondary part right after the triumph of Carmen Jones. He argued that the big white stars, the Liz Taylors and the Marilyn Monroes, would never accept such a part, and that if Dorothy wanted to be considered their equal, she should start demanding what she deserved. Dorothy ultimately used the clause in her contract that guaranteed her leading roles to get out of doing the movie. But in the process, Zanuck apparently lost his drive to develop films with Dorothy as the star. A number of vehicles for her that were announced in the trades never got made. Most sadly, a remake of The Blue Angel with Dorothy in the Dietrich role. Dorothy would make just one film for 20th Century Fox, Island in the Sun, an ensemble piece about colonialist sex in which she'd play a West Indies native in love with a white man and share billing with James Mason and Joan Fontaine. Dorothy hated the finished movie, and it got bad reviews. But it was a crazy big hit, becoming one of the top 10 grossing films of 1957 and making more money than any other Fox release that year, aside from Peyton Place. Island in the Sun proved that the suggestion of interracial romance was good box office, which weakened the censorship board's ability to legislate against it. It was while Dorothy was negotiating her newfound stardom and the surprisingly limited options it offered her that the confidential story hit the newsstands. Confidential was a tabloid magazine started in 1952 by a New Yorker named Robert Harrison. Originally a mix of all kinds of social issue-baiting scandal stories, including exposés on (gasps) homosexual weddings and any excuse at all to show women in their underwear, the magazine became a blockbuster when Harrison switched gears to focus primarily on Hollywood. The third issue led with a story about the love triangle between Marilyn Monroe, her husband, Joe DiMaggio, and her studio chief sugar daddy, Joseph Skank. Skank had floated in and out of power a couple of times since the 1920s, but he had never been the subject of such salacious gossip, at least not in print. That confidential would go there at all, sent a signal to all of Hollywood that it was not the typical publication which could be easily bought off with access or cold hard cash. In Hollywood Babylon, Anger correctly describes the publication's modus operandi, although he neglects to mention that it wasn't exactly groundbreaking. Anger claims the nucleus of the organization were call girls who spied on their johns, But that's not the whole story. Confidential did rely on a network of tipsters 
which included sex workers as well as disgruntled studio employees, private detectives, and nobodies who had happened on access to somebodies. In that sense, it was following in the footsteps of The Hollywood Reporter, which, as we discussed last week in our episode on Bugsy Siegel, initially saw itself as an antagonist to the studios that had a mission to publish everything the powerful men in town didn't want to see in print. But as its founder, Billy Wilkerson, became more compromised by his own wealth and power, the reporter increasingly got in bed with the studios. Confidential would remain a thorn in the establishment's side as long as it could. Unlike other tabloid magazines which published what amounted to fan fiction, Confidential had a reputation for accuracy, which, of course, was even more troubling to the elite. One of Harrison's first hires had been a libel lawyer who helped to vet each story about a public figure and obtained sworn affidavits from sources. One of the tricks suggested by the lawyer was to strategically withhold portions of each story. So, for instance, if Confidential ran a story about a star having an affair, they might not include the fact that the affair was with an underage girl or the son of the star's ex-husband. That way, said star would be afraid to sue for libel because they'd probably have to tell the full story in court. Confidential ran a story on Katharine Hepburn's, quote, torrid tomboy ways, which hinted that she had a male lover, but spent most of its energy implying that she was gay. This inspired no legal action from Hepburn, who had been the subject of gossip that she was a lesbian ever since she first strode onto the RKO lot wearing pants, not because it was old news, but because she needed to protect the identity of the man not named in the story, Spencer Tracy. To shore up Confidential's credibility, Harrison created what could much more accurately be described as the nucleus of the organization, a separate entity called Hollywood Research Inc., headed by his niece, Marjorie Mead. The New York-based Harrison sent Mead to Hollywood to be the manager of his eyes and ears on the ground. Hollywood Research wasn't a detective agency per se. It was more like a watching the detectives agency. And it was very intentionally set up as a corporation totally divorced from Confidential so that they could operate independently. But once Confidential was put on trial, no one bought that they were separate entities. And it was Hollywood Research's incorporation in California that gave that state legal jurisdiction to file suit against the New York-based Confidential. Confidential's tactics led to what Anger correctly termed a reign of terror. Truly, for the first time since the 1930s, Hollywood's power brokers were faced with a publication that they couldn't control. Anger paints Harrison as a mogul who became drunk on his own power and began stretching what he could get away with, 
until he got caught. Based on two books published about Confidential in recent years, this doesn't seem exactly accurate. Much of the problem seems to have stemmed from the hiring of editor Howard Rushmore, a former communist turned McCarthyite who became tight with J. Edgar Hoover and used Confidential to bang the drum for the Hollywood blacklist and the eradication of supposed communism in all aspects of American life. In the context of the 1950s, this gave the magazine gravitas. Even though it was making most of its money publishing lingerie pics and celebrity secrets obtained by the ladies of the evening who supposedly wore hidden microphones on their wristwatches. Dorothy was not, as Anger claims, the first star to sue Confidential. In the spring of 1955, a number of stars, including Robert Mitchum and Elizabeth Scott, all filed suit against the magazine. Elizabeth Scott, a glamorous blonde who frequently played femme fatales, sued for a story which claimed her phone number had been found in a Madam's Little Black book, meaning that Scott was a customer of Call Girls, and thus a secret lesbian. This story had been written by Rushmore, and Scott's case alerted Harrison to the fact that he had a problem on his hands with his editor, who disregarded the fact-checking protocols that had protected Confidential in the past. In the fall of 1955, Harrison negotiated Rushmore's exit from the magazine, giving the editor a cash settlement and the promise that Rushmore wouldn't be liable for any libel suits that resulted from his reporting and editing. Rushmore took the deal and then turned right around and offered his services to Jerry Geisler, the Hollywood attorney who was representing Mitchum and Scott in their lawsuits against Confidential. The Dorothy Dandridge story didn't even run until the May 1957 issue, two years after Mitchum had filed his suit. The headline was, What Dorothy Dandridge Did in the Woods, and the story claimed that while in Lake Tahoe for a singing gig, Dorothy wandered by herself into the forest and let a man who followed her have sex with her right there amongst the trees. This story was not true, but Confidential may not have known that, and at this point in their evolution, they were less inclined to care. They had paid for the story from a source, a white band leader named Daniel Terry, who claimed to be the man who had enjoyed Dorothy's forest friskiness, and he was sticking to his story. And it was the perfect confidential story, in that it mocked an adult woman for supposedly having consensual sex and raised the specter of interracial coupling, one of the publication's favorite taboos. Most celebrities didn't sue publications like Confidential, even when they printed things that were provably false, because in a libel case, you had to prove that the publisher knowingly printed something untrue with malicious intent. And because once a celebrity got on the stand to defend one aspect of their personal life, 
the rest of their personal lives would theoretically be fair game under cross-examination. Plus, Confidential was known to have an aggressive legal team. They managed to get the Mitchum case dismissed on a question of jurisdiction. But the Dorothy Dandridge Confidential story, coming at a time when Dorothy was desperately trying to figure out how to use her celebrity to have a satisfying career, made her so angry that she felt she had to act. She filed a $2 million lawsuit against Confidential. In May of 1957, Confidential settled with Dandridge, paying her $10,000 in damages. It was a lot less than she had asked for, but it was historic because Confidential had never settled with a celebrity to that point. But then in June, Confidential argued that the settlement was invalid because Dorothy had violated it by talking about it to the press. Now Confidential claimed that they stood by their story and had only settled with Dorothy to avoid the cost of a trial. Dorothy started feeling pressure to clear her name by testifying against Confidential. It's important to note that the trial Anger discusses in Hollywood Babylon was not a civil trial instigated by Dandridge, Maureen O'Hara, or any other celebrity, but a grand jury convened by the district attorney and attorney general of California after the governor of California, who happened to be Goodwin Knight, the judge from the Mary Astor custody trial, publicly called for expose mags like Confidential to be banned. Anger muddies this issue by noting that many aggrieved stars filed their own suits, which is true, but these suits were not decided by the state's trial of Confidential on charges of conspiracy to commit criminal libel and to publish indecent material. And it was at this trial that both Dandridge and O'Hara testified. As the trial was underway, Robert Harrison defended himself in the pages of Confidential. In an editorial, he wrote, California has accused us of a crime, the crime of telling the truth. This was rich, he added, because Hollywood is in the business of lying. Falsehood is a stock in trade. They use vast press agent organizations and advertising expenditures to build up their stars. They glamorize and distribute detailed and often deliberately false information about them. They have the cooperation of practically every medium, except confidential. They can't influence us, so they want to get us. This was all true, except for the fact that Confidential had not always told the truth, especially after Howard Rushmore had been hired and weakened the standards of the magazine. Dorothy Dandridge forever maintained that Confidential's story about her having sex in the woods was not true. But contrary to Anger's dismissal of her testimony, she used her time on the stand to make an important statement, puncturing a greater falsehood within Confidential's approach. She contrasted the fantasies of interracial titillation, which Confidential sought to cash in on, with the harsh reality of life as a black woman 
under a microscope in 1950s America. She told the grand jury that as a black woman, under contract the casino, she would have avoided the appearance of impropriety. And thus, she might have politely posed for a photo with Daniel Terry. But aside from that, she would have avoided Daniel Terry. At a place like a casino in Tahoe, as she put it simply, Negroes were not permitted to socialize with white people. We will talk about the results of this trial and its impact on Confidential in next week's episode. Its impact on Dorothy Dandridge is a little bit difficult to quantify. By the time the trial was over in the fall of 1957, it seemed as though all the momentum she had earned from Carmen Jones had vanished. She would make just one more important film, collaborating again with Otto Preminger on another all-black musical, Porgy and Bess. By now, Dorothy and Otto's affair was over, and he offered her no special treatment on set to balance out his temper tantrums, his tendency to berate her and all of the actors viciously and openly on set. As of January 2019, when I'm making this episode, Porgy and Bess is notoriously unavailable due to a confusion over rights stemming from multiple sales of the Samuel Goldwyn catalog and infighting amongst the estates of George and Ira Gershwin, both of which do not like Preminger's adaptation and have historically not wanted the film to be seen. The Gershwin heirs are not the only ones who were unhappy with the film adaptation. Suffice it to say, Porgy and Bess did not get the rapturous reception of Carmen Jones. By the time it was released in 1959, its story and style seemed dated. It only made back about half of its enormous for its time $7 million production cost. After that, Dorothy never made another film in Hollywood. She was briefly considered for the role of Cleopatra, but it went to Elizabeth Taylor. She married a huckster nightclub promoter named Jack Dennison and lost a lot of money in celebrity capital, supporting and performing at his dinky clubs. He beat her and stole from her and tried to make it impossible for her to get rid of him. Dorothy was finally able to file for divorce in 1962, at which point she was broke, and her prospects for movie work had totally dried up. Jack Dennison only consented to a divorce when Dorothy Dandridge had nothing left for him to take. Like pretty much everyone else in Hollywood, Dorothy had long been a user of tranquilizers and sleeping pills. But in the 1960s, she also started taking an antidepressant drug that was sort of like an early version of Prozac. At age 42, Dorothy Dandridge was found dead on the floor of her bathroom in September 1965. The coroner's office first stated that she had died of an embolism, a freak occurrence resulting from an injury to her foot she had sustained earlier that week while exercising at a gym. But then the coroner held a press conference 
to announce that the previous conclusion had been rushed and that it was now apparent that Dorothy had died from an overdose of her antidepressant. An investigation determined that it was probably an accident, but those close to Dorothy had mixed opinions. Some thought she had been coming out of a dark period right before her death and wouldn't have chosen to die. At least one of her close female friends believed that she had lost the will to live much earlier. Next week's story is not as sad, but it does feature a suicide, a murder, and a public debate over whether or not the star of Miracle on 34th Street had sex in a movie theater. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 